This episode of Just the Right Book Podcast has been brought to you by Love Pop. Unlock special pricing for five or more cards and get free shipping on any order by going to lovepop.com slash bookpodcast. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's happening in the literary world. The other day, I had the pleasure of interviewing Isabel Allende in Madison at a live event hosted by R.J. Julia, and... Speaking with Isabel was fascinating on so many different levels. She grew up in Chile in the 40s, uh, and then her family was there when Allende was overthrown, who actually was a relative, or how she found love in later life in her relationship with her grandchildren, and just this kind of optimism that permeates everything she does. Plus, she's hilarious. So uh, I hope you'll listen to that. And in case you missed the news on the National Book Award winners last week, stay tuned. And after my discussion with Isabel Allende, you'll hear who won what. But first, my conversation with Isabel. Thank you for coming out on this uh rainy day to experience a perfect hour. Um, We have with us a woman who has written 23 books, published in 35 languages. Only 70 million copies have sold. Where are the 70 million dollars that I should have? She has 15 honorary doctorates from all over the world. She's received over 60 awards from 15 countries, including the White House Medal of Freedom. Thank you. Thank you. Her work has been adapted into plays, operas, ballets, movies. TV and radio shows, and in her spare time, she founded the Isabel Allende Foundation Empowering Women and Girls Worldwide. She brings to her work and her life passion, resilience, wisdom, wit, and love, and the understanding of humankind's capacity for love despite what might have happened in their lives a renaissance woman for our time, if you would please join me in welcoming Isabel Allende. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Her new book, which you have, have any of you gotten to read it yet? Ooh, you're in for a treat. Her book is a madcap caper and a mesmerizing tale that brings together Evelyn, a young, undocumented Guatemalan woman, Lucia, a 62-year-old exile from Chile, and a highly educated lecturer and scholar, and Richard Baumaster, a 60-year-old human rights scholar. Along the way, we learn about the injustice of immigration laws, 
human trafficking, the terror of militants, yet all imbued with stories of resilience, friendship, and above all, love, even in the midst of the winter of our lives. Isabel, both Evelyn and Lucia have experienced unimaginable harm and loss, yet they remain able to care and to love. What do you think contributes to that kind of resilience? You know, Roxanne, this is what I have seen in my life. Mm. Uh, Usually the people who are mean and evil are the people who feel entitled because they have not suffered enough, they have not earned anything. People who really have gone through hardship are the people who can communicate and can connect with other people better. It's not the people who have suffered, the ones who become bitter and, e- and evil. It's mm. the, one who feel, the ones who think that they deserve more than what they have. You have a scene where Lena, one of the, a mother of Lucia, Lucia's mother, yeah. who's dying, who's uncomfortable. It's, I hadn't thought about putting this together, who was uncomfortable with how dependent she became when she was dying. And you talk about her daughter explaining to her is this is the last part of her journey to heaven is to learn to be humble yeah. and to receive. That's the hardest part. When one becomes dependent, you know, my parents are still alive. My mother is 97 and my stepfather is 101. They are immortal. I will have to kill them at some point. And uh, I see these two people and I remember how they were. My mother's brain is perfect, but her body doesn't work. She's totally dependent. She needs help for absolutely everything. And to, to learn to receive... And my mother has learned that in her old age. She says, now I'm humble and I'm grateful. She never was before. Talk to us about um, the impact that your grandparents had. Speaking of your parents, your first absolutely exquisite, perfect book, House of Spirits, shared with us. But share with the audience how your grandparents impacted you. Well, my mother married very young, the wrong man, my father. And... um, They were married for four years, and my mother had three kids, 11 months apart. She was so fertile that, thank God, well, I inherited that. And thank God the pill was invented in my time, because otherwise I have 12 kids and no books. (laughs) And and so when my father left my mother, she left her with two babies and a newborn premature baby. And my mother had to return to live in the house of her her parents, my grandparents. So I grew up the first years of my life in my grandparents' house. And unfortunately, my grandmother, who was the life, the soul of the house, Mm -hmm. died very young. And my grandfather, who adored her, went into a deep mourning. And he dressed in black from head to toe, painted the furniture black, flowers, parties, desserts, The radio, all that was forbidden in the house. It was a house in mourning for eight years. So the first years of my life were in this strange house that was a large, impressive house, dilapidated, because nobody took took care of it. Nobody did anything to make it look hospitable or, or nice. 
everything was harsh. Mm. There was, of course, no heating. This was Chile in the 40s. There was no heating. No, everything was uncomfortable. I grew up in a very uncomfortable place, which is a great way to grow up. Because now I'm amazed that you open a faucet and hot water comes out. <laughs> I can't believe it. You flush a toilet and something disappears. <laughs> it's, it's great. And so speaking of Chile, your father was a first cousin of Allende, who was overthrown uh, by a CIA-backed... Um, military coup. Military coup. So how, what... So you were already 21 when that No, happened. I was 30. You, oh, you were 30. That, oh, that's right. It was in 73. Mm-hmm. So how did that form what you thought of the United States? Because well, I hated it. The United States was my personal enemy until I came here. And then I realized that this was a huge country and that often people have no idea what the government does. And if, if, even if they know what the government does, they can't stop it. And most people, when you explain uh, what happens abroad because of the CIA or because of bad policies of this government, people understand, and they are very generous and very kind. The, the American people are very generous, and they don't want to be the bad guys ever. You have to remember that governments pass yeah. and people stay. And systems yeah, and our institutions are strong enough. We do hope that the damage will be controlled and that we learn from the experience. We had in Chile a military coup. That we had the longest and strongest democracy in the continent when we had the military coup. And then we had 17 years of dictatorship. It's very hard to explain what a dictatorship is to a country who thinks that that would never happen to them. Uh, I thought that it was, it was never going to end because they controlled everything. There was no Congress, no public opinion, no free press. Everything was controlled. How do you get rid of a, of, of a government in that situation? But eventually we did. And now we have a democracy that is stronger than ever because we learned. Democracy is like health. You only appreciate it when you lose it. Mm. Now let's get to this delicious book of yours. How'd you come up with this trio in this story? It all began in Brooklyn, where every year we rent a house to bring all the family because my daughter-in-law's family is from Brooklyn. And it's very funny because when we take the, the plane to go to Brooklyn, Lori's accent changes. And by the time we land, I don't know what she's talking about. So we get to, to Brooklyn, and we all share the holidays, in, usually in a big house. And this, uh, in, in, on the holidays of 2015, we were having brunch, and somebody said, what are, what are you going to write in a few weeks? Because I, write all, I start all my books on January 8th. So it was two weeks from January 8th. And I said, I don't know. What could I write about? And everybody started giving ideas. And some of the ideas just were stupid, but some of them, some of them were great. We won't say whose ideas no, were no, no. stupid. But, uh, for example, uh, Lori's sister said, you know that this was the neighborhood of the mafia, of the Italian mafia, and many of these houses that you see belong to the mafia. And she told us that once... One schoolmate who was the daughter of one mafioso uh, 
found a body in a car, in the, in the family car. And I thought, that's extraordinary. I have never found anything interesting in my car. <laughs> and, and then somebody, somebody else said, write about this house. And then Laurie said, write about refugees. Mm. Because she runs, she's sitting there, that's why I'm pointing there. <laughs> why don't you stand up, Laurie, for a minute? She, she'll kill me. I'm sorry, she'll kill me. Uh, but she runs the foundation, and my foundation has been dealing with immigrants, undocumented immigrants and refugees, for some years now. So she's very involved in this, and she said, refugees. This was before Trump. He wasn't even a candidate. This was in January of 2016. So the, the plight of refugees was in the air. In 2015, 68,000 minors crossed the border looking for their parents or trying to save their lives. And so th there was a huge crisis with these minors. Nobody knew what to do with them. And many people think they have to be deported. So my foundation got involved in that. So we had many cases like Evelyn Ortega in the book. Right. I, we, I didn't have to make up the undocumented young woman who crosses the border looking for her mother um, and escaping from the horror and the violence of the gangs in Guatemala, because Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador are what they call the Triangle of the North. And those are the three countries where there's more violence in the world that, is, that are not at war. So the corruption, the inefficiency of the government and the police, the poverty, the, the narcos, the, the gangs, all these make life impossible for most people. Mm -hmm. And so that's why people leave. Nobody wants to leave their place of origin. Why would you leave your home? Why would you leave your family? Everything that is familiar to you, unless you're running away from something. Yeah. And because I have experienced it, I know what I'm talking about. Of course, my case is not at all like, like Evelyn Ortega. Not at all. I am a very privileged refugee. Yeah. The other thing that was striking to me, so Evelyn is an undocumented worker. She's working as a domestic for a um, well-to-do, if complicated, dark family. And you're reminded of, A, that means that they can take advantage of you from a compensatory standpoint, because what are you going to do, report them? No. But the other thing that was striking is the intimacy that developed between her and the wife of her employer. Well, that's because Evelyn is a traumatized person that has suffered personally extreme violence. And she's uh, working for a woman who is the victim of domestic violence. The husband beats her up. And so Evelyn becomes her closest confidant and companion because this woman, of course, hides the problem and doesn't share it with anybody and lives very isolated. But Evelyn can understand her because she has gone through a lot mm. and because she's a good soul. And how would you describe, you know, one of the things that was striking to me, so the, I'm not giving anything away. The book opens, there's a snowstorm in Brooklyn, there's a car accident, and the man who owns the brownstone, uh, Richard, is a kind of bottled up, man seemingly without any capacity for emotion. His downstairs neighbor, who's an exile from Chile and has also witnessed and experienced horrible situation, lives downstairs and is sort of fond of Richard, but gets nothing back. Well, I think she, was, she wanted him at the beginning, but then the guy is such, such a bore 
that she gives up. But I think the, the guy is sexy. He looks good. And, and so she, she sort of likes him, but then gives up. So the fact that, so they get, they're now inextricably tied together and can either, I don't want to give too much away, they can, even, they can either decide to be in this together and figure it out or bail. And they decide they're in this together. And when you thought about how realistic do you think it would be that these people come together this way? Well, there is one sentence that opens the book. It's a quote by Albert Camus that says, in the midst of winter, I finally found in me an invincible summer. And when I stumbled upon that sentence, I had written it down in a notebook and forgotten about it. And then I opened this notebook, found it, and I realized that that was the thread that would uh, keep the book together, would mm-hmm. give the structure to the book. These are three people who are living in an emotional winter, mm-hmm. a long emotional winter. In the case of Richard, it's been 25 years. Lucia, although she has gone through cancer and she has lost her mother and things have happened and a divorce, She's still feisty and she still has a zest for life. She's the one who will lead uh, Richard and Evelyn into this adventure. And Evelyn is almost mute. She's, she lives in hiding. She, she's invisible in a society that doesn't want to know that she exists. And where she has absolutely no safety, except the safety that she can find working for that family in hiding in that place. So she doesn't care how much she gets paid as long as she's, she has a place protected. to stay, somehow protected. So uh, with this idea that the three are going through winter, then a horrible snowstorm hit New York last year on the 22nd of January. And for three days, the state was paralyzed. That's exactly what I needed. I was so happy. And what, <laughs> nobody had transportation or electricity or anything, and I was Really happy, because that was exactly the setting I needed for the book, the metaphor for the book. And so I have them in in the storm. And the idea of bringing them together, I'm sorry, I will have to give something away. I shouldn't. No? I will. (laughs) I'll 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 tell you why. Because this is not a crime novel. There is a crime, but... It's not a crime novel. So when I wrote it, I have a body on page 20. And then, of course, the reader is expecting a crime novel. It was very easy to solve the problem and just move the body to page 100. <laughs> and so by the time you get there, you know the stories of the, of the other, and you know that it's not a crime novel. But it was fun because um, when you have a body and you have to hide a body or destroy a body, there's so many infinite possibilities, mm. infinite possibilities. I emailed all my friends, and I said, how can I get rid of a body? <laughs> and I got incredible answers. I mean, <laughs> did they sound experienced? No, but, but wishing, <laughs> wishing. I think that everybody... They had somebody in mind. Exactly. <laughs> everybody wants to kill somebody, usually a member of the family. <laughs> and they have already thought how they're going to get rid of the body. So I got incredible story. I, I mean, you dissolve them in drain or you, you chop them in pieces and cook it. You, lots of ideas. And um, so I spent several months trying to get rid of a body 
that very fortunately was frozen because it was in the back of a car in the middle of the storm. So that's the story. Conveniently frozen. Conveniently frozen. <laughs> and then I had to find out how long does it take for a body to freeze and to defrost. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it, it was fun, really fun. And, um, but that's, not the, that's just the, the excuse to bring these people together. Mm. When they decide to take risks, to act out of solidarity and compassion to help the young girl, when they open their hearts, they find the invincible summer mm. that was waiting to manifest. Yeah. And the invincible summer that we all have. I have gone, and I'm, I'm sure you too, we've gone through winters in our lives, sometimes long, hard winters, but the invincible summer is always there, waiting. Mm. You know, in... And by the way, not only individuals, also peoples and nations, countries go through long winters, but the invincible summer is under the surface. Just let it happen. You know, as I was reading the book, which I didn't really want to have it end, I wanted to spend time with Richard and Evelyn and Lucia. Do you ever have a hard time letting go of the characters? No, no. You're done No, let them go. Look, I spent the whole year, I have 360 pages, I'm fed up with the guys. You never really finish a book, you just give up. There's the point when you say, okay, yeah, that's enough is enough, let them go. I never remember who. And when you start a book, you know, I've heard writers say, the characters tell them where the story is going to go. I have authors say they write an outline. They know exactly how it's going to end. Which, which is your process in writing a novel? I usually have a time and a place where the situation will happen. And that allows me to research enough so that I can build a theater where my characters will move. Mm. But then the rest is very instinctual or organic. Um, I think that I'm writing about something and then all of a sudden the story turns around and I end up writing about something else. Let me give you an example. When I was writing um, Island Beneath the Sea, I was never thinking of Haiti. I wanted Mm. to write a book about the pirates of the Caribbean and this is why. I love that book, by the way. Well, this is why, because I had written a book called Zorro and Zorro, my character, was in Spain. I had to bring him to California. But... The villain left after him, and he needed to get to California before. So I needed to stop Soro somewhere. So, of course, he's kidnapped by the pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> and I had to research the pirates. And I discovered that this, the, it was a fascinating society, a true, truly democratic society with a kind of social security, and in which the bounty was distributed in a very uh, democratic way, and there was something safe for those who were uh, injured, for the families, for the widows. Very interesting. So I said, oh, I'm going to write about that. But then Hollywood came out with the movies. And and I couldn't... It was annoying. Very annoying. Very (laughs) annoying. And so I couldn't. But by then, I had gone to New Orleans to research about that area, and I fell in love with New Orleans. And I, I said, where does this... French flavor come from. It was 10,000 French colonizers that left Haiti because of the slave revolt and they went to Louisiana. 
and they bought land and they, they established themselves in New Orleans, always with the idea of returning to Haiti, but they could never return. So th- th- my book ended up being about the Haitian Revolution instead of the Pirates of the Caribbean. But if you would have asked me at the time, what are you writing about? The Pirates of the Caribbean. And they are not even mentioned in the book. Now, why do you start your books on January 8th? Because you're pretty religious about that. Well, because I'm a natural procrastinator. Mm. If I don't, I don't have a boss that will force me to, to do something, I'm my own boss. And so I give myself a day to start. And January 8th is good because it's after the holidays. It's, it's, a, it's the winter. It's a time of introversion. It's a good time. And it works. And you've stuck with it for all these books. Well, after 23 books, you think I will change it? No. It would be way too risky. Too risky. I mean, I can't do that. Now, speaking of risky or, or bad luck, in this book and in many of your books, you have healers, spiritual people that help other people. And I've heard in interviews when people refer to your books having elements of magic realism, you feel like, no, this is not necessarily magic realism. This is realism. Yeah. So talk to us about that. For example, in this book, I have this girl that is this Guatemalan girl. She's still in Guatemala with her grandmother when something horrible happens. And the girl loses her voice. She becomes mute. So the grandmother takes her to Petén to a shaman, una curandera. And the, the curandera actually exists with that name, Felicita. And she, um, she's very well known. And people come from all over. And the, she, she's a, a psychic. She has, I suppose, also elements of spirituality. And in a way, they are, she's magical because people trust her. Mm. And be, like we trust our therapist, who probably knows less than Felicita, by the way. <laughs> And then she gives, she gives the girl a drug. She gives her ayahuasca, a tea of ayahuasca. So the girl sees visions. And in the book, it's mildly explained why she has the visions. So an, a, a careless reader might think that that's magical realism, but it has an explanation. The difference between fantasy and magical realism is magical realism has always... You experience it in reality, it's, let's say, um, the invisibility cloak of Harry Potter. I've never seen one. Have you? <laughs> no, that's fantasy. But invisible Indians in the Amazon, these are in- indigenous people who paint the body in the colors of nature and walk so lightly in nature that you don't see them. They are three yards away and you don't see them. So that would be magical realism. We're going to take a short break to talk about today's sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Love Pop, and they create these greeting cards that are wildly intricate 3D laser-cut paper cards. Now, to say they're pop-up cards is not doing justice to the art quality of it. And they're handcrafted and assembled in the Asian art form of slice form kirigami. And I had never seen uh, that before. They've been featured on The View, Good Morning America, Forbes 2020, The Talk, CNN. They're everywhere. And they've won one of Inc.'s uh, design awards in the reinvention category. So they're 
they're just beautiful little pieces of art, and I'm going to be sending them out for the holidays because they elevate just sending a card to feeling like it's some intersection between a card and a gift. And I think it'll make the sender certainly notice it because it's beautiful, if not display it, because it looks like art. But remind them that I was thinking about them in a meaningful way of connecting with them. So they're called Love Pop. And you can get special pricing for five or more cards and get free shipping on any order by going to lovepop.com slash book podcast. Now let's get back to my conversation with Isabel Allende, the author of In the Midst of Winter. Isabel, you you know, one of the things that I've been struck by in reading your books over all these years and in spending time reading about you to prepare for this afternoon, I am struck by the kind of enthusiasm that you maintain, and things have not always been easy for you. You've lost a daughter, you've had marriages, and um, what is it that you think has given you that capacity to remain optimistic and passionate? Well, the invincible summer, that is always there. But, but I think that what helps also is that I'm healthy and I have energy. And also I'm very hyper. So if I, if, if I don't do things, I, I go crazy. Um, and I'm lucky. I'm yeah. lucky. You know, people have talked a lot in this book and my previous book about mature love. Mm. They call it mature love because they don't want to say old age love. <laughs> but that's what it is. And um, in, in uh, the other book, what was the name of it? The Japanese Lover. I have um, a, a couple that is 80 years old. In this one, they are in their 60s. Mm. They are getting younger. And when I wrote the, this book, I was in one of those long winters. I had been married for 28 years to a man that I loved very much, Willie. But the marriage had been deteriorating in the last seven years, I would say, seven, eight years. And then uh, there was a moment when I had to make a choice, either stay in that relationship that was not going anywhere, or uh, either stay there or um, get out. Mm. And it takes a lot of courage to stay in something that is not working. It's just better to take the risk and, and leave. And everybody said, but you're 72 years old, are you crazy? Are you going to spend the rest of your life alone? Well, that's better than spend it when, with someone that Don't doesn't want to be with you. Don't you think most women have a hard time making that decision? Yes, because, because most women don't have the, the resources that I have. I'm not talking about money. I have an infrastructure of, of family, of readers, of, um, of people that support me, even my mother who writes to me every single day at 97. She emails me every single day. So with that infrastructure, I can do it. But most people are very lonely. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it's very hard to, to decide to, to do something like that if you're not supported. But I was. So I separated from Willie, and then my agent died. My beloved Carmen Balcells, that she really created... A powerhouse. Woman. A powerhouse. And Just she, extraordinary. And she created me as a writer. She made me a writer. And then three of my best friends died, and my dog Olivia died 
plus the divorce, everything was just so heavy. And um, I felt that I was living in one of those winters, and that's why the sentence by Albert Camus was so, so, so important for me. I was waiting for that summer to come, but it wasn't coming. And then one day, um, a guy, a, a lawyer from New York, from Manhattan, was driving to Boston and heard me on NPR. This was last year. And he didn't like what I said, so he wrote to my office. And my assistant answered, and then he wrote again. And then I answered. And we, we started corresponding. I would answer sometimes, but he would write every single morning to say good morning and every night to say good night. Every morning I would get... This sounds like a charmer. You no, know, it, it would sound like harassment, but, <laughs> but, actually, <laughs> but actually he was very delicate. He never said anything that I could interpret like, like stalking or, or like nothing romantic, n- nothing very intellectual or very spiritual either. So why the heck did I get addicted to these messages? I would get up in the morning and run to my phone to see if there was a message. And the message would be a photograph of a cappuccino. Go figure why I needed that. I must have been really lonely. And then in the evening, the moon or something like that. Five months of this. And then we never talked on the phone, nothing. You never talked on the phone? No, because I was scared that I wouldn't like his voice. <laughs> and what if I didn't like him? What if he was a jerk? So I rather, I didn't, we didn't talk. And then um, I had to go to New York for something for the Center for Reproductive Rights, a gala, and I, I decided to invite him. And so we met. And we met, and... Uh, he was a very pleasant guy. There was nothing really wrong about him. So he was not deformed. Or anything. No, he was fine. And um, he was also my age, so he, younger, a little younger, not much. And then... 17. Uh, <laughs> I wish, I wish. No. I've heard you talk about what you do with Anthony Banderas, so I'm just bringing that up. Well, you know, he, he isn't Antonio Banderas exactly, but Antonio Banderas might end up like him. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, in any case, he invited me out for lunch, and um, I, I asked him, what are your intentions? Because I'm 74 years old and don't have any time to waste. So if you intend something more, let's be clear about it. The poor guy choked on the ravioli, but, <laughs> but he, you know, he was waiting for his summer to manifest mm-hmm. because he, he was a widow with a, with a life like Richard in the book, mm-hmm. like a very stable life, nothing happened, good or bad, totally safe. And then the Latin American hurricane hit him, and, he, <laughs> and now he's, he sold his house, and he's moving to my house in December with his clothes and a bike. That's all I, all I accept in the house. So <laughs> that is what happened. Now, I'm, without disclosing the ending, did you write the ending before or after you met? No, the dedication I wrote after we met. Right. But the book was finished by the time I met him. Mm. But in a way, I, I sort of called him in the ether of in the limbo, because Richard is very much like him. Interesting. Yeah. 
That's weird, Isabel. It's weird. <laughs> but if you I'm just saying it. Roxanne, look, I wrote... It took me four years to write The Island, Island Beneath the Sea. And the book was published the week of the earthquake in Haiti. And that happens to me all the time. That you're, now you're scaring me. And I'm scared myself. <laughs> you know, I wrote this book where, with all these timely issues before the election, long before the election. Mm. And so now I'm afraid that because I write it, things happen. <laughs> what if I'm responsible for what's going on in this country right I now? I think you ought to do some consultations yeah. before you come up with the next <laughs> subject. <laughs> you know, in, in listening to you and in reading the book, I wonder, do you hear from a number of women who feel liberated to experience relationships in a different way than they might have before they listen to you or read your books? Do people well, I, write to you about that? People write to me about a lot of things. Yeah, I bet. And, pe- you know, it's very interesting because as I get older, my readership is getting younger and taller, by the way. <laughs> That's annoying also. Very annoying. I end up looking at everybody's nostrils. <laughs> uh, but I get a, a lot of letters from people who say that they have a story similar to the story mm. that I have told, which gives me the idea that probably all stories are similar. Somebody said once that there are 12 stories, and the rest are all variations of those 12 stories. So maybe it's true, because I get a letter from someone in Finland, or someone in uh, Italy, or in Vietnam, or wherever, <laughs> and, and they, they say the same thing. This could be my family, this happened to me. Or they, they identify... Because the emotions are always the same for everybody. Well, and I think, I think what your books do is they make it safe for people because you have characters that people can identify with and where they thought it was their secret or their burden or their problem. By having such compassion for the characters that you write, I think it's liberating to people to then say, wow, I can't believe somebody else feels the same way. So I can imagine there'd be, because you're talking about basic emotions, right? You're not, you're not inventing things. And you're, I mean, even when you talk about Evelyn, you, you can't help but remind yourself that when you see someone like Evelyn, you're going to think differently about them. You're going to treat them differently. You're going to have a better understanding of what they might be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Well, that's the whole point of literature. It brings us together. Why do we read? Because it's like when we read, we have a voice in our head that is connecting us to a story and probably to another person. We see the person from inside. Mm. Uh, when we talk about immigration, for example, in this country, we talk about numbers this is, and problems. And, and we say 11 million undocumented people, deport all these people, build a wall, whatever. When we hear the story of one person, of why that person left everything that is familiar to her, in this case a girl, and everything that, that had been what she knew, her grandmother, her village, her house everything, and she's running away for her life, and she's coming to the United States to look for her mother, whom she hasn't seen in years, because the family in Guatemala survives only because the mother is working here and sending money there. When we see the case, we have a name, we have a face, as we do in the foundation, Lori and I, then it's another problem. Then it's not numbers, it's people, People. real people. And I could be that person. That girl could be my daughter or my granddaughter. Right. 
and then everything changes. You know, so I think that's the power of storytelling. You know, I, my parents were both refugees. And so when I read about refugees, I think, you know, people say that when bad things happen to people, the first thing you want to do is sort of distance yourself from that. Like say, oh, well, I'm not Guatemalan. I have blonde hair, not brown hair. You know, all this. It, you know, you just want to figure out a way so that you feel differently about the Syrians or the Rohingyas in um, um, Miramar, but if you if you either have experienced it or, as you say, it's been humanized for you, it feels utterly different. So, uh, it, and I think the service that you do, not only through the work of the foundation, but in writing about these characters, can change the dialogue. I hope so, but that's not my intention. I never try to solve well, it's the problem. Collateral credit, <laughs> collateral damage. Yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, I try to tell a story. Yeah. That why that story? And you do a damn good job. <laughs> why that story and no other story? Yeah. Because I care for that particular issue. Why those characters and no other characters? Because they speak for me. Mm. And and so it becomes very personal everything that I write. I couldn't possibly write a novel about Wall Street. That'd be no. boring. But but I can write about anyone here. Now, can we take some questions? Great. Being bilingual, do you write in Spanish, English, or both? Gracias. <laughs> I, I write in Spanish. All the important things in my life happen in Spanish. I cook in Spanish when I cook, which is not often. I talk to my dog in Spanish. I make love in Spanish. I would feel ridiculous panting in English. And <laughs> Does panting sound different in Spanish? <laughs> Sounds much better in Spanish. <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately, my, my new lover doesn't speak a word of Spanish, and also he has hearing aids, so... <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm suspecting he hears the pants. <laughs> he doesn't hear a thing. And if he does, he doesn't understand. Which gives me a lot of freedom on that. How do you remain so lovely? Ah, thank you so much. It takes a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What kept the Chilean people hopeful under the dictatorship of General Pinochet? Well, all political organizations were banned. The only uh, institution that remained strong was the Catholic Church. And it, um, there, there were many priests and nuns that acted in defense of the people who were suffering from repression. But under the surface, under the repression, there were, people were, were getting organized. There were, there were movements. When I say that there is the invincible summer under the surface, this is what was happening in Chile. And when the opportunity came of a plebiscite, every, the, the government controlled everything. They, they had all the power, and they were absolutely sure that they would win the plebiscite and, uh, and Pinochet would stay for eight more years. They lost it. So, so under the surface, things happen. And when, when, when I think of this country, for example, and now we see people who were silenced uh, for a long time now have a megaphone to express ideas that for a long time were not accepted in the culture and now they have become 
permitted in the culture. I also see that there are many forces moving against that and people getting organized and the young people being very frustrated. And I think this is going to shake the country in a, in a very important and positive way because people will, will get organized. I mean, why did the de- Democrats lose the election? Because they were, what were they thinking? They were in limbo. They never saw what was happening really. And so now it's time to take a look. I'm very optimistic. Just, just chill. <laughs> chill. Governments pass and people stay. So, yeah. So, Isabel, my last question to you is, what's the book that changed your life? The House of the Spirits. Because that book gave me a voice. It paved the way for all my other books. And uh, it made me a writer. I, would have, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, Roxanne, without that book. And you were 39. You, and you had had a career as a journalist. You did advice columns, right? Well, I've done even horoscopes. Everything. You did horoscopes? Yeah. Did you make it up? How did you, of course how did I you... made it up. Everybody makes it up. <laughs> Do you really believe in astrology? I, I, now I'm upset. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so wh- what gave you the confidence at 39 to say, you know what, I can, I can write a book? No, I didn't have the confidence and I wasn't writing a book. I was really frustrated with my life. I was middle-aged, and I felt that uh, my life wasn't going anywhere. I was living in Venezuela. Um, My marriage wasn't working. My husband was working far away. My kids were growing and leaving the nest. Nothing was working in my life. And then I got a phone call that my grandfather was dying in Chile, but I couldn't go back to say goodbye to the man that had brought me up, really. He was the father's substitute when I was very young. And uh, so I started a letter for my grandfather to tell him that I remembered everything, all the stories that he had told me. And so the book begins with the story of my great-aunt Rosa, my, my grandfather had a fiancé that everybody said was very beautiful called Rosa. And um, she died in mysterious ways. She, it seems that she was poisoned. And, and there was something political, something strange happened. It was shushed in the family. And then eight years later, my grandfather married the youngest sister, Rosa's youngest sister, my grandmother. And uh, Rosa's uh, portrait or sepia photograph was on the piano in in my grandfather's house. And he would say that she was beautiful as a mermaid. And I had a story, a fairy tale storybook with mermaids. And the mermaids had green hair. So that's why the, the character of Rosa in the House of the Spirits has green hair. And so I just wanted to tell my grandfather that I remembered Aunt Rosa, I remembered that story and all the other stories. And I just kept telling the story. So the book is pretty much about my family. And many of the characters are members of my family. I always say that with a family like that, you don't need to invent anything. (laughs) They provide all the magic. All the material. Oh, raw material forever. In closing, there's a couple of um, 
thoughts I'd like to share uh, with everyone. Uh, but for one, you know, in the bookstore, uh, one of the pleasures and honors that we have is putting the right book in the right hand. And it's not often that we have a book like In the Midst of Winter, which both manages to be textured, very realistic about circumstances that are unpleasant, if not horrific, and yet is imbued with the kind of optimism that you obviously live with. So it's the kind of book that we as book, booksellers feel like grateful that we can share with people. And all of you were lucky that you're going to get to take this book home and start it tonight and... That'll be it for you for the night. You'll get, you'll get sleep tomorrow. Well, thank you so much, Roxanne. And the other thing I'd like to thank you for is what we talked about a little bit earlier, and that is I think we read books to learn how to live, and we learn how to have compassion for people. And I think the 23 novels that you've written over these years have given us all of that in spades. Thank you. (laughs) And I feel grateful that you're a writer that continues to write the way you do. So my thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Isabel Allende. It was just so much fun to spend time with her. The National Book Award winners were announced last week, and you might want to pick them up in case you missed them. Young People's Literature was Far From the Tree by Robin Benway. For poetry, it was Half Light, Collected Poems from 1965 to 2016 by Frank Bedar. And nonfiction was The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia by Masha Gessen. And for fiction, Sing Unburied Sing by Jesmyn Ward. For those of you who read her first book, Salvage the Bones, uh, this book quite lives up to the reputation uh, that she made with her first book. For a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, including Isabel Allende's In the Midst of Winter, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.